Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Maxime Bernier and his People's Party of Canada will face the electorate in Monday's federal by-elections in British Columbia, Ontario and Quebec. I spoke with Mr. Bernier about that, about the scandal in Ottawa and a few other things. Listen. I spoke with Democracy Watch co-founder and law professor Duff Conacher about what's going on in Ottawa. Duff's point was, and you can read it on democracywatch.ca, is any committee of MPs is a kangaroo court, as they're all partisan. Fully independent investigation needed. Here's how Duff put it to me. The National Energy Board greenlights TMX. Will the by-election in Surrey on Monday decide the NDP leadership fate of Jagmeet Singh? And the developing scandal in the B.C. legislature. Mike Smith, political columnist for the Vancouver province and CKNW host, joined me from Victoria. Jesse Smollett continues to insist he's telling the truth and that he's a victim of a racist attack and he's hired legal defense to take his I'm innocent position to court. I spoke with two guests, Ron Miller, African-American, and dean of the Helms School of Business at Liberty University, author of Sellout, Musing from Uncle Tom's Porch, and I spoke with Dr. Lauren Wright. She lectures in politics and public affairs at Princeton University. She had a lot to say. Have a listen. Mr. Shear, Mr. Trudeau, uh, having at one another as far as the developing scandal in Ottawa is concerned, watching all of this and intending to replace Mr. Trudeau as Prime Minister, is Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party of Canada, and uh, he joins us on the Roy Green Show, I believe. Uh, Max, you're in B.C.? Yes, I'm in B.C. right now. I did campaign with our candidate, uh, Loraline, uh, yesterday and, and today, and so she's going well. We'll see what will happen Monday night. So how, how, how do you assess things in Burnaby South as far as your party's concerned? Oh, uh, you know, she's a strong candidate, and I think people appreciate the way that we are doing politics without any compromise, based on principled. And people know that uh, you know we are the principled alternatives, we, and uh, it's uh, it's great because it's giving us a, an opportunity to speak to people. And I did door to door with Loraline, and the reception is very good over there. Same thing in uh, York Simcoe. There's another by-election there. We have a good candidate, Robert Gott. Uh, prominent lawyers, and in Montreal, Tremont, it will be a little bit more tougher for us. It's a, a socialist writing uh, that was writing of uh, Molker, the leader of the NDP. Uh, but we are there, and we are doing our best with James Seal, a guy that was with uh, the Canadian Forces for 30 years, and after that, he went and did an MBA and uh, work uh, in the private sector. Now, how important are these particular three uh, by-elections on Monday? to setting the pace or setting a standard or setting a visibility level for the People's Party of Canada? 
It is important, yes. You know, it's our first uh, test, if I may express myself like that. Uh, and I'm very lucky to have that uh, five months uh, after the creation of the party and eight months before the general election. And, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, it, I, I, we don't do any, any polling, the, the People's Party of Canada. First of all, we don't believe in that. We're doing a policy, politic based on policies and, and principles. So uh, I'm, I'm looking forward for that. But I think it will go well, you know. Uh, uh, it will be, I'll, I'll, I'll look at it and it would be a surprise for me uh, that these results. Uh, but uh, we did our best. We work hard. I campaign in every riding uh, where where there's a by-election. So, but yes, answering your question, it is a test for us, and um, and we'll see. Um, and are you expecting uh, to, to win any of the three? Well, two of the three, or one of the three? <clears throat> but, you know, if we uh, if we can win one of the three, it would be very difficult to win in uh, Outremont. Uh, like I told you, it's a uh, right. very socialist riding. Uh, in uh, York Cinco, it is a conservative riding. I think we can, uh, and the conservative over there won with a huge majority. But I think we can have a good score there. Uh, so we'll see. And uh, in BC, as you know, that's the leader of the NDP who is there. Right. But I think it would be between uh, the leader of the NDP and Loraline. I think we can do well there and uh, we may win Monday night. We don't know, but, you know, we are working hard. Uh, what's your sense about Mr. Singh? If he, uh, I know you're not, you're not really uh, involved with the NDP in any way, but if, if he loses that particular by-election, uh, is that it, do you think, for his political career? Well, I think so. You know, uh, I don't. I don't see any legitimacy for him to stay and and being a leader of that party for the next election. Uh, but you know, that will be a decision that the uh, the members of the NDP will take. But uh, for me, I think it, it would be very difficult for him to stay uh, as as a leader. And if he doesn't win, I hope for him that he will resign the same night. You know. Uh, because uh, his party, they won't have enough, enough time to uh, have another uh, leader. But we don't know what will happen. I, I, I checked some uh, uh, polling, public polling, and he, he was uh, winning. But uh, uh, I know that our candidate, uh, Laura Lynn, she was doing very, very well. She actually, she won the debate that they had. Uh, they had two debates over there, and uh, she won these uh, two debates. So, uh, we'll see what will happen. Everything can happen there. So back to the question, and I've asked you this before, and you know, you're, I'm sure you're asked it constantly. There are many people who say, look, the People's Party of Canada, we like Maxime Bernier. We may like what the party stands for, but we, we're conservatives. We don't want to see Justin Trudeau reelected. And if we vote for the PPC, what we're doing is giving Justin Trudeau an edge. So why is Maxime Bernier doing this? Well, first of all, you know, we have the momentum. Andrew Scheer uh, is doing his best, but if you're a real conservative, you know, you must vote for your values. You know, if you believe in free market, why Andrew Scheer is supporting the cartel of supply management? That's bad for hardworking families. They're paying $800 every year for that. Why Andrew Scheer is supporting uh, more immigration? You know, 49% of Canadians said they want, they want fewer immigrants, and Andrew Scheer is like just saying, we don't want that, always more and more. If you're a conservative, you know, why Andrew Scheer is supporting the Paris Accord? Uh, you know, I'm not supporting the Paris Accord. Uh, and I want to impose a tax on climate change. I want to have uh, an aid policy on climate change. I will uh, let provinces deal with it. Uh, and Andrew Scheer, like that, is, is like uh, Justin Trudeau. He wants to fight climate change at the federal level, but instead of imposing a tax, he wants to impose more regulations on businesses. And we all know that when you impose regulation on businesses, 
there's a cost there, and the cost is always transferred to Canadian consumers. So on a lot of policies, they're, they're like the same. Uh, on corporate welfare, corporate welfare. And Rouchier wants to have a minister from Quebec that will give subsidies to Quebec, a minister from Ontario that will give subsidies to, uh, to uh, businesses in Ontario. We want to abolish that. He wants to do the same thing like the Liberals. So I'm telling people, if you're a real conservative, real free market conservative, and believe in individual freedom and personal responsibility, come with us. We have a momentum, and actually the test of that momentum will be Monday night. So, yes, I want to get rid of Justin Trudeau also, but I don't want to, to replace that by a, a, a centrist and pragmatic party, like Andrew Scheer said. He said that the Conservative Party of Canada, it is a pragmatic and centrist party with lots of ideas for lots of people. So for me, it's a political party that has no principle and no vision for the country. So I don't, and it's a, it's, I don't, hear, the, I, I don't hear the word reconciliation showing up anywhere. Oh, no, no, not. I'm there for the long run. You know, we're going to win that. I will be prime minister this year. And if I'm not prime minister this year, you know, I'm in politics for the next 10 years. And absolutely not. This party, the Conservative Party of Canada, is a corrupt, a corrupt party, intellectually and morally. I said that and I believe in it. You know, they don't have any conviction. They don't know what they believe in. They have to do polling. And so I know what is good for this country. That's the definition of a leader. You need to speak about the equalization formula. He cannot speak about that. Do you? He doesn't have the. He, and Rouchier and, and Justin Trudeau, they don't have the courage do you, to say to Quebec. Maxime, do you, believe this, do, do you believe this country is in danger of fracturing completely? Scott Moe, the premier of Saskatchewan, has said on this, on this program, he's asked, do we have a country? And that's after British Columbia and the premier there really put a halt to, trans, uh, to, to TMX uh, in, in, in last summer. We've had Brian Higgs on the program, the premier of New Brunswick, who yeah. asked, is Canada a nation or an ocean? That's after he attended the first uh, first minister's conference. In Quebec, you have the, the Bloc Québécois with, uh, with, a, with, with a new leader and... Uh, seems to be gaining in popularity. They're tied with the Conservatives, according to uh, polling that I've read, according to Leger polling. So do you think this country is in danger of fracturing? Yes, yes. And I'm the only leader who, uh, who uh, has the solution for that. You know, I was at a rally in, uh, in um, uh, Calgary uh, with the equality of independence uh, political party at the provincial level. That's, they, they have a, po a political party in Alberta that wants the, the, the province to be independent from, from the rest of the country. And I told them the solution, you know, I understand your point of view. I understand your frustration. I understand. But, you know, you must fight against Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer because you, the solution of your challenges that you're having is pipeline. And I'm the only politician who said that. And I'm saying that every time that I have a question that I'm ready to use the Constitution Section 9210 to impose a pipeline in B.C. if the B.C. government doesn't want a pipeline or in Quebec. It's a federal jurisdiction and we have the power to do it. And after consultation, if necessary, we must use it. Andrew Scheer and Justin Trudeau doesn't want to speak about that. Same thing for the equalization formula. You know, they are fed up to give money to Quebec and, and have not province for the last 50 years. And yes, the equalization formula, it's a poverty to add. It's, uh, we need to change that. We need to be less generous. 
We need to give the right incentive to Quebec and New Brunswick to develop their own natural resources. I'm the only one who say that. That's the solution for being sure that we'll be a united country, more prosperous, and, and we have the solution. And that's why this movement is growing, and we have a lot of support so in you, and in Quebec. Max, if you say that about Quebec, you know, not, not shouldn't receive the amount of equalization money they receive. Mr. Trudeau just boosted it by 1.3 or $1.4 billion just a few months ago. Uh, how's that going over with Quebec voters? Are, are you not shooting yourself in the ankle? No, it's going well. You know, you know, people are saying Bernie is a populist politician. They may be right, but I'm a smart populist politician because I want to appeal to the intelligence of Canadians, not to their emotion. When I'm saying that to Quebec, I said that in French seven years ago. It is not new. I said I'm not proud to be a Quebecers when we are a poor province. And Quebecers understand that. We are a poor province because we have a big, fat a government at the provincial level, a socialist government, and that's why we are a poor province. And, and they don't have an incentive to change that. You know, hydroelectricity, it is not part of the equalization formula, but the energy coming from oil and gas, it is part of the equalization formula. It is not fair. We must change that. And Quebec doesn't have any incentive to develop their shale gas because if they have more private sector uh, growth, they will have less equalization money. We need to cut the equalization money to be less generous, and like that, they will have to find okay. another way to be more prosperous. I'm saying that to Quebecers, and they understand that. They're okay. proud. Okay, so you're, you're also saying it to British Columbians and Ontarians right now who will be voting on yes. Monday. I get that. Now, yes. I, and your, your message has been consistent all the way through. I, I, I know. The conversations we've had, you've, you've stayed consistent with what you've said. Now, one final question for you. How do you assess what's going on in, in Ottawa right now between Mr. Trudeau, the former Attorney General Wilson-Raybould, the PMO, SNC-Lavalin, and then on Thursday, the uh, clerk of the Privy Council got up and started talking about being concerned about assassinations and somebody getting shot during the federal election? No, first of all, I think we must uh, go to the bottom of that. We must have uh, more an answer. And I think I'm very pleased that the former minister will uh, will uh, speak about it next week. But the big portrait, the big problem, it is uh, more than that. It is the crony capitalism in Ottawa. Justin Trudeau uh, put in the budget a SNC-Lavalin clause to be sure to give a privilege to that big corporation. And he wanted to do that secretly. And Andrew Scheer said the same thing. Yes, I believe in that. We must have... That, uh, op- that, hold on, can, uh, I, can I get you, I'm sorry to interrupt, can I get you to hold on for a minute? Yes. yes. I have to take a break. I've totally ignored that. I'm going to take a break and then we'll come back and we'll talk some more with Monsieur Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party of Canada, and we'll ask for more of his thinking on what's happening in Ottawa and what likely uh, lies ahead. Whenever I speak with my current guest, Maxime Bernier, the leader of the People's Party of Canada, I receive emails accusing me of turning the election over to Justin Trudeau and that I shouldn't speak with Maxime Bernier. Well, I am going to speak with Mr. Bernier. He's the leader of of the national political party, and uh, it's his intention to run candidates in all writings, and uh, we're going to talk to him. Now, um, let's go back, and then I want to ask you how well you're doing with getting candidates for all the writings and how finances are with the party. But finish your thoughts, please, on what's going on in Ottawa with the Justin Trudeau uh, Wilson-Raybould situation. Yeah, thank you, Roy. I was thinking about the uh, the crony capitalism in Ottawa, the corruption in Ottawa. It's all about that at the end. You know, the Liberal wanted to have a special deal with a huge corporation and give them a privilege uh, for them to be above the law. 
for me, there's no cooperation above the law. And, you know, the, the procedure must go on. And if it's insensitive, they're going bankrupt. It's bankrupt. It's okay for me. I don't have any problem with that. And I know that the people who are working with insensitive that are great uh, workers, they will be able to find a job in another corporation. Uh, but that being said, uh, the, the conservative. They have the same position than the liberal. Uh, Lisa Wright was on national TV, and when uh, they asked her a question about, you know, what is your position about the DPA, the 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 the, the, the possibility to have a special deal with a corporation for a corporation to be above the law, she said, you know, we believe in that, and but everything must be done publicly. That's the big difference with us and the liberal. The liberal they wanted to do that secretly, but for us, yeah, I think we need that. Uh, all the other countries they can have a deal with corporation like that, and we. Need to have a clause like that in, in our legislative framework. I don't believe in that. We didn't have that possibility for the last 150 years, and it's unfair. And our party were speaking about fairness. It's unfair for the small business owner that if they're doing something wrong, they're going to be sued and they get sued, and they're going to pay. They're going to pay for that. So no privilege, and that's the crony capitalism. Politicians in Ottawa want to have special deal with big corporation, giving subsidies to big corporation. We are the only party who want to hand the corruption in Ottawa. Andrew Shear and the Liberal, they're the same about that. Okay, I if have two. I, that, Mike Max, yes, I have two minutes. Uh, will you have a full slate of candidates? Yes. All writings. All writings. And I need that. And I need to have at least 304 candidates because for being part of the debate, the national debate, one of the conditions is to have 304 candidates. And I can assure you that we'll have 338 candidates and good candidates like the candidate that we have right now in the by-election. And how are the finances with your party? It's going very well. We were able to raise more than $300,000 in one weekend. And up to now, since the foundation of the party, we raised more than a million dollars. And so, yes, we'll have the resources to be effective and to be there during the general election. Uh, we won't compete with the Liberals and the NDP with all the money that they raise. But all the money that they raise, they're putting a lot of money on survey and focus group and polling. For us, we don't spend money on that. And they're putting a lot of money also on the organization on the ground. They have people full-time to help them to organize their, their writing. For us, it's all about volunteers. We have volunteers all across the country that are helping us to build this party. So I'm very happy and I'm very proud to have all these people that believe in our principles and our values okay. that are helping us to build this party. Maxime, what's the, what's the most important issue that you will run on federally in, in October? What's the number one issue? The economy, the economy, and immigration. And you're opposed to the compact, the UN compact on migration. Absolutely. I think you had uh, Michelle Rempol on, on your yeah, That's right, I have. Yeah. She, yeah. In the beginning, she said, oh, it's not binding, so it's okay. And at the end, because I was the first day, I was the first principal leader, principal politician to say no for the global compact. And Andrew Scheer did some polling and survey, and he saw that it was very popular. And four days before the signature, he said that he's against that. Okay. And I can tell you that the I, more popular will be, the, 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 more, the, the more challenging it would be All right, for Max, us this year. I have to go. I thank you very much for the time, and we will have you back. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. Have a nice day. You Bye -bye. too. Maxime Bernier, leader of the People's Party of Canada. Hey, look, he's running. He's allowed to run. And the Conservatives, if they, if they're, if they, look, if Mr. Shearer and the Conservative Party of Canada want to win the right, the Conservative vote in Canada, they just have to go out and do it. It's that simple. You can't look at uh, Maxime Bernier and say, well, you don't have the right to do that. Yes, he does. Yes, he does.
And so he's an opponent, and you have to beat him in order to win. Is it advantageous to Trudeau? Probably. Back with us on the program is Democracy Watch co-founder and law professor Duff Conacher. When we last spoke with, uh, with Duff, he pointed out that Democracy Watch was challenging the fact that the Federal Ethics Commissioner, Mario Dion, is involved in the Trudeau-Wilson-Raybould issue, which is, of course, again, consuming this country, because, as Duff pointed out, Mr. Dion was appointed by the Trudeau cabinet and without engagement by the opposition parties, as required by the Canada Parliament Act. Uh, Duff Conacher is a law professor and uh, lawyer, and I suggest you get involved or at least get on, have a look at democracywatch.ca, and you can get engaged with what they do. Duff, thank you for coming back on the program. Uh, you, you remain with the point that Mr. Dion is the wrong person to be conducting an ethics investigation. Yes, and also that uh, we still have a big question about uh, whether there will be a fully independent investigation that's thorough of this situation. And it's not unlike past situations. Um, we have a problem in Canada with ensuring an independent, full investigations uh, of these kind of situations. The, essentially, the, the politicians at the top in the cabinet have set up, uh, set up the system so that they control investigations of themselves. When I went on democracywatch.ca uh, this morning and I looked at the, uh, the uh, headlines that you have on the, on the uh, moving script, I don't know what the technical term is, but th there was one that really caught my attention, and, and it was that any MP committee is a kangaroo court, and that is because they're all biased. Yes, very much so. And the Justice Committee showed that when they first met to uh, debate on whether they would investigate the situation and, and how. The Liberals were, took a stand that protected the Cabinet, and the opposition parties attacked the Liberals, and essentially some of them accused uh, those involved have wrongdoing, even though there hasn't been an investigation. And that's how it always goes with committees. You know, when we had a minority government from 2004 to 2011, when the opposition parties controlled uh, all of these committees because they have a majority of seats, all of these things were investigated by committees uh, through the Harper years and also with uh, Paul Martin's minority government, uh, the Liberals. And that's because the opposition parties could force the investigations to be held by committees. And then when you have a majority government, none of them are investigated by committees. Or if they are, it's in a very, very controlled way. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening. I've seen it for 25 years. The system is the scandal. We cannot have fully independent investigations of these kind of situations. The best opportunity we have for an independent investigation is the RCMP at this point. Um, but there's still lots of questions about how the RCMP has handled these kind of situations in the past. For example, letting Nigel Wright off the hook while charging Mike Duffy. One would think both would be charged since Mike Duffy was charged with accepting a bribe. And so why wasn't Nigel Wright charged with giving a bribe? And it always seems to be the PMO and the cabinet that are protected and someone else is scapegoated in yeah. these kind of situations. It's like a secret society, isn't it? Sorry? It's like a secret society. It's definitely an elite club, and the doors are closed, and the rules are set by the members, and the members are these uh, top elite government officials and the cabinet ministers who they serve. When you see Michael Wernick and his statements, I know you're having others comment on, on that. He's supposed to be 
according to tradition, an independent person as the head of the public service. And fully impartial. Yes, but that's a charade. He's serving at the pleasure of the prime minister. All the deputy ministers serve at the pleasure of the minister that they serve. They can be fired at any time for any reason. And they have no wrongful dismissal lawsuit that they can file. It's the fundamental flaw with our so-called neutral public service is that to reach the very top position, which is the deputy minister in any department, you have to please the minister because they want someone who's there who is going to do their bidding and not tell them they're breaking the law and help them break the law and do whatever they want and not challenge them. And everyone below them in the public service knows that if you want to reach the very top, you're going to be serving at pleasure of the cabinet minister. And Justice Gomery, one of his most important recommendations, was ignored. And actually, a gang of 68 top government officials and former prime ministers came out and wrote this open letter saying this is a horrible recommendation. Uh, Essentially, the letter said that ministers need deputy ministers to be blindly loyal to them. Blindly loyal to them, not to the law, not to justice, not to upholding the public interest, but blindly loyal to the minister. And his recommendation was the deputy minister should be selected by an independent commission, and they should serve a fixed term, and can only be dismissed by a minister for cause. And if we had that, we would have a neutral, independent public service. No wonder Canadians became enamored with electing minority governments. Indeed. And... uh, tried to last time. I mean, the Liberals have a miracle majority. And I I wrote an op-ed back in December of 2015 saying because they have a miracle majority, you know, they have the largest number of seats in the House with the lowest percentage of votes since Confederation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I think they they won, they they have 27%, if I have this correctly, they have 27% of the eligible electorate and they have a majority government. Yes. a long line of false majority governments we have at the federal level. And again, another serious flaw with with our so-called democratic system. Is yeah. that you get all power with this uh, minority of a vote. Let me just bring this up. Also on democracywatch.ca, I saw this line. Rules so weak, Cabinet Minister Scott Bryson, or this, this is not my writing, Cabinet Minister Scott Rice, Bryson was able to leave and join a bank which lobbies the government. Yes. When you think about it, <laughs> that's crazy. Indeed, and the, actually the rules are so weak that he could be a lobbyist for them, and he could actually lobby the Trudeau government. So you leave the cabinet and you go to work immediately for a multinational organization that has tremendous influence and power, and you become, effectively, effectively a lobbyist. Well... There is this one rule in the federal ethics law, and Democracy Watch's position is that it means that you can't take these jobs, mm-hmm. but the ethics commissioner has simply refused to even say what the rule means exactly. And the ethics commissioner formerly was Mary Dawson for 10 years, and for 10 years she didn't define what this rule means. And it's a key rule for ministers who leave office, and the rule is, you cannot give advice to anyone, an employee or an employer, sorry, a, a client, using information that you learned as, uh, while you were in public office as a cabinet minister that's secret information that's not accessible to the public. And she didn't even define it during her whole 10 years. But office. I think you just did. 
Well, it's pretty plain language. It is. But it draws, you know, you have to interpret each word and what does that yeah. mean and what is giving advice. And our point has always been, and we filed a complaint against Chuck Strahl, who was a, a conservative cabinet minister, and he was there at the time that the uh, National Gateway pipeline was being discussed and Enbridge was pushing it, and then he left and started working for Enbridge. And our point was, well, he can't unlearn what he learned at the cabinet table. So any advice he would give to Enbridge, he would be giving using the information that he learned, and that, that is secret information. It's protected by this thing called cabinet confidence, which really shouldn't exist. And I, ha- I have about a minute here, but it's amazing. I go back to what you just said. The Ethics Commissioner, Mary Dawson, was unable to, unable to define what the responsibilities and what the requirements are if you leave cabinet and go to work for somebody. Yeah, she didn't, she didn't really want to draw those lines. Whenever she could, she would just avoid even no. defining what a rule no. meant. And it lets people off the hook as a result. And, and she found 85% of people that uh, complaints were filed against, she found them not guilty. She, she had uh, in more than 220 secret rulings. We don't even know what the situation was. She just said in her annual report, I, she would say things like, I received 30 complaints, they were all invalid. And that's all she would say. <laughs> and that's the ethics watchdog who protects one of the key persons to protect uh, democratic good government in Canada. And she was just acting like a lapdog, letting people off the hook right, left and center. Duff, thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. I'm happy to comment again as things yeah, develop well, and a lot more development's coming, that's for sure. We'll definitely get back in touch. DemocracyWatch.ca. Duff Conacher. My guest, when we come back, the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. He has a lot to say about the clerk of the Privy Council standing up before the House Justice Committee and saying what Michael Wernick said. Brian Peckford is the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador. The premier has been very kind to us with his time. I was reading his blogs at peckford42.wordpress.com. If you want to really read something that will you'll enjoy and it'll get your attention, just read Premier Peckford's blog, Peckford42 at wordpress.com. And uh, it's Clerk of Privy Council Part 1 and then Part 2. Premier, thank you so much for the time. What's wrong with what happened with Michael Wernick uh, on, on, on the Hill? Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, we have over the last several years blurred the lines between the elected and the non-elected. Mr. Wernick is Clerk of the Privy Council. He provides advice to the Prime Minister and to the Cabinet. End of story. This issue, I think it was a CBC article, and other people have written more or less along these lines, that somehow he is there, wait for it, to protect the public interest. That is the role of the Prime Minister. That is the role of the Parliament. That is the role of Cabinet. Mr. Wernick is simply there to advise those leaders who are the elected and who are responsible for the public interest. This bit, in that case, we better close Parliament down and Cabinet down and just enlarge the numbers of people at the Privy Council so that the Privy Council and Mr. Warnick can protect the public interest. How far does this go? There's an extension to a wharf in Nain, Labrador. Uh, money from the federal government does. The Privy Council advise the minister responsible for infrastructure, whether this is in the public interest or not, how foolish, but not only that, how dangerous to take out of the control of the parliament, the politicians, the role to protect the public interest and put it in the hands 
of non-elected people. They're there as advisors. Hopefully they're good advisors, and they look at all the issues, and then they advise the leaders and the politicians and the elected, and that's the end of it. For the, for the clerk of the executive council to think he has the power to pick up the phone and call the minister or call somebody in the ministry to go over the business of whether this decision uh, about SNC-Lavalin is somehow, you mightn't realize how much this is in the public interest. Forget about the law. Forget about whether it's legal or not. Is completely outlandish, and it has to be arrested. And Premier, uh, the the clerk of the Privy Council was not shy about criticizing the former Attorney General and standing with the Prime Minister's positions. And the Prime Minister seems to have very happily been paraphrasing the clerk. Unbelievable! It is totally unbelievable. And then they hear the Prime Minister say, "Hey, Canadians, listen." To the clerk, no, Prime Minister, we want to listen to you. You are the person we elected. We never elected Mr. Wernick. He was appointed by you and is responsible to you. You are responsible to the public. So, so we're getting it all uh, upside down. This is what happens when the Prime Minister's office and Privy Council office mushrooms, as it has over the last few decades. And the poor M- elected MP and even some of the ministers are, are left in the wake of these bureaucrats taking on the power which legitimately belongs to the elected. This has got to stop. And the commentators around Canada and other retired politicians or whatever just got to come out of the woodwork and say, we've had enough of this. We've got to reestablish, realign what uh, democracy, parliamentary democracy is all about. It's parliamentary democracy. It's not bureaucratic democracy. I mean, this is outlandish. It is. I know you're pressed for time, uh, so I'll, I'll just ask you once. Or can you stay longer, or do you have I to go? I can. I can. I was able to rearrange things. Uh, okay. So let me, ask you, let me ask you to stay. We have to take a break. No problem. It's about four minutes, and, uh, and then we'll come back and we'll talk more with uh, Premier Peckford, because I'm very interested to find out what the Premier has to say about Mr. Wernick's declaration that he's concerned about assassination, uh, or it leads to what's been going on in the public discourse about politics, uh, could lead to assassination, and he's afraid someone's going to be shot. Uh, in the upcoming election campaign. And that's just bizarre. But again, this is the man who sent an email after students interrupted a Cardinal University board meeting to protest hike, hiking uh, tuition or higher tuition rates by emailing that the students behaved like brown shirts and Maoists. Now we're talking about the clerk of the Privy Council, Canada's top bureaucrat, who appeared before the House Justice Committee on Thursday and made statements like this one. I worry about foreign interference in the upcoming election, and we're working hard on that. I worry about the rising tides of incitements to violence when people use terms like treason and traitor in open discourse. Those are the words that lead to assassination. I'm worried somebody's going to be shot in this country this year during the political campaign. This is the clerk of the Privy Council appearing before the House Judiciary Committee. And then he says, my conclusion, I do not see where the former Attorney General was a solicitor. The matter was never discussed at Cabinet, never, so she was not giving advice to Cabinet. She was not advising the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister said it at every occasion, verbally and in writing. 
She was the decider, so she was not giving legal advice to the prime minister. She was the decider, the full and final decider. She can't be the fettered solicitor and the battered decider decider in that horrible, vile cartoon at the same time. It's one or the other. Brian Peckford, former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, is my guest. We're always thankful when the premier joins us on the program. And please check out his blog at peckford42 at wordpress.com. Premier, those words, by the clerk of the Privy Council, I'm, I'm still shaking my head. I'm absolutely, uh, I'm astounded. I don't know how much, you know, my head and my neck is getting really sore from shaking it uh, and listening to uh, this gentleman speak and, and others uh, on this uh, issue of SNC-Lavalin and, and the role of the Minister of Justice and all the rest of it. But the first part of his comments about work. <laughs> I mean, is this the oracle? Is uh, you know, when does this guy uh, uh, become anointed to uh, the you know uh, uh, say to the multitude that suddenly we have a, a dangerous situation in our country and he's frightened to death that in the next election there might be somebody shot just because somebody, a number of citizens have have the right to speak out and and say we're not happy with the way the prime minister and the government is operating as it relates to the SNC Lavalin. I mean, this is like this is out of line altogether. I mean, talk about impartiality. Where has that gone? This guy is no more impartial anymore. Then, of course, uh, as you uh, just pointed out, um, he contradicts, of course, his, his boss in trying to defend him and talking about uh, there is no solicitor uh, lawyer uh, thing here. She decided. Of course, this is what I've been saying in my blog. Um, she has the right and the director of prosecutions heard an application from SNC-Lavalin to be uh, come under the new law of exempting them from going to court and working out some kind of a deal without going to court. The director of prosecutions said, no, it doesn't fit under this new provision. It doesn't fit. Therefore, we can't consider you under this. And the minister agreed, and it's all over. Well, but, but Premier, let, me, let me just stop you there. Is that, that is where it should all be over. The prime minister should not re-engage in any conversation after that, if I understand None. it correctly. None. Zero. I was a premier for 10 years, from March 79 to March 89. And I never, ever saw anything like this. The clerk of the executive council, which is the counterpart of the clerk of the Privy Council in, in the federal government, uh, had no role in this. The clerk of the executive council arranged cabinet meetings, arranged the cabinet papers, gave advice to the cabinet committees, gave advice to the cabinet as a whole, and that was it. And the rest of it was in the hands of the politicians, the leaders. I, in 10 years, I've never heard anything like this. That was off limits. Never talked about it. was totally understood by everybody, and everybody abided by it. So... This idea that the Prime Minister or his office or the Privy Council office somehow then gets involved with a decision that was made by competent, independent people in their roles as Director of Public Prosecutions and is their role as the Attorney General of Canada, that should have been the end of it. End of story. That's the way our system works, and it works very, very well. Thank you very much. How is this going to end? Where is it going now? What's your thinking? Good question. A very, very good question. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, the, the way that the uh, former Attorney General and Department of Justice, uh, Minister of Justice, is, is operating, 
Uh, on the one hand, you hear her say words like, you know, her truth and wanting the truth to come out and all the rest. On the other hand, asking to meet with the cabinet, asking, and then uh, meeting with the caucus after she uh, had resigned from cabinet seems rather peculiar to me. So I don't, under, I don't know where it's going. To have the clerk of exec- executive council appear before the parliamentary committee, fine. We can deal with his comments. It's completely out of line. As a matter of fact, he's no longer impartial and I think should be removed. As far as where it's going from here, it seemed to me like there's some kind of a grand strategy by the government uh, to try to uh, rein this in and defend itself, defend, as, as my view, is the indefensible. So this is all very peculiar and very uncharted waters, because what has happened is, is that the government of the day and the prime minister have broken the sacred rules of the difference between the elected and the unelected. And when you're in those waters, when you're in those choppy, uncharted waters of violating what is the parliamentary democratic system, uh, you know, who knows where it's going to finally end up. But I'm very happy that there are at least some commentators out there who see the dangers posed by having uh, this blurred responsibility go from the elected to the unelected. The clerk of the Privy Council is completely out of line. Prime Minister is completely out of line. And given the peculiar behavior so far of the retired minister, it's difficult to be able to predict where this is going to go next. Where I think and would recommend that it go is that the prime minister and his office and anybody else involved with the federal government that intervened to the minister or the director of prosecutions should be held accountable by parliament. You you also challenged uh, the so-called national broadcaster well, the CBC did a story, and I covered this in my first blog on the Privy Council, in which it tried to defend what the clerk of the Privy Council was doing. And what did they use as their argument? What did they use as the foundation of their reasoning? A source, an anonymous secret source. Seven times in that article, CBC article quoted a source. Now, give me a break. Here is a, a corporation that we gave $1.2 billion to last year and who very often carries stories about all of these different organizations and companies being secret and doing things in secret. And here they are trying to defend a clerk who's only supposed to be an advisor to the prime minister and to the cabinet, defending him and his actions in intervening with the Minister of Justice wrongly and incorrectly by using what, as their argument, an anonymous source. This is this is terrible. This is not journalism. This is this is a public broadcaster that is outside uh, the journalistic standards that we normally associate with a public broadcaster. You pointed out in your blog piece that you actually served on the board of the CBC for some five years. Well, this is I I made that clear primarily because I wanted people to understand. That, you know, I've had some experience in this field. This is not the, <laughs> this one thing to be elected to provincial legislature and serve as I did as minister and premier and so on. After that, I accepted and, and served on the board of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I know how it operates. I was there. I was a, I was a chair of their human resources committee for a while. I was part of a three-person uh, board committee when the government of the day announced the uh, reductions uh, to the uh, uh, CBC that helped uh, administer those reductions in a in a in a in a sort of a, what shall I say organized and sensible way. So I was there, and I know 
this system. And, and, and I wanted to say that in my blog so that people didn't realize that this was just some flippant uh, comment of mine. This is based upon years of experience of dealing with CBC as premier, where they erroneously quoted me many times, for which I got apologies later, and that I actually served on the board myself. Premier Peckford, thank you so much. It's always good speaking with you. It's peckford42.wordpress.com for the Premier's blog. And uh, Duff Conacher from democracywatch.ca pointed out that what's required here now is an independent investigation, not a public inquiry. And I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Premier. Always good speaking with you. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Mike Smith joins us from Victoria, British Columbia. You live in paradise, my friend. <laughs> Thanks for the opportunity to be on again, Roy. Yeah, no, I'm lucky guy to be living in Victoria. We, uh, it's a beautiful city, and uh, for a political columnist like me, there's lots of politics going on here. I always tell my friends I never have writer's block. There's always something. Well, let's start with uh, with what the uh, NEB released and decided yesterday, at least informed us of yesterday, sure. and that it's in Canada's uh, better interest to see the TMX uh, finished off. Uh, well, how's that going over generally in British Columbia? Well, it's no surprise that this ruling comes down from the uh, the National Energy Board to want to greenlight this pipeline again. Remember, they had proved it earlier, but the federal courts had uh, put the brakes on it and uh, ordered the government to go back and do some more reviews. So they had to do another uh, review at the National Energy Board, specifically to look at the environmental impacts of the pipeline and, and very specifically on uh, killer whales off the coast of uh, British Columbia, which are not doing well uh, lately. And the ruling was that the project would certainly have a negative impact on the killer whales in the waters right now, but there were recommendations to mitigate uh, some of those impacts, slowing down ships off the coast of uh, Vancouver here uh, in order to reduce noise pollution in the water to uh, help the whales. And those conditions will almost certainly be met, and that would satisfy that condition. Another condition that was laid down by the courts is ordering the government to go back and do a do-over on consultation with First Nations. So that's going on now. And you can anticipate that'll be done in the next few months. Then it'll be decision time for Justin Trudeau and how quickly he wants to get this pipeline in the ground. Trudeau's gone all in on this thing. He, he's been very clear that he wants the pipeline built, and he's a big supporter of it. I guess the question is, do you get construction going this summer uh, before an election in the fall? I suspect that he will, Roy. I mean, you take a look at some of the opinion polls. The public generally supports this pipeline, including right here in British Columbia. I and mean, people think that, you know, BC is a hotbed of environmental opposition to big projects like this. Most people in British Columbia support this pipeline. So I suspect that you'll uh, probably see shovels in the ground this summer. But when that happens, there will be protests as well this summer as well. Yeah, and Mike, uh, Trudeau's got some cover on this because, as you said, the NEB decision comes with 156 conditions and 16 new recommendations concerning marine life. So he can use that for cover as he agrees to shovels in the ground, which, depending on what happens now with this, uh, this, this scandal in Ottawa and the legs it may have, does it have enough legs to go for eight months? Who knows? But uh, well, it depends on what we're going to find out going forward. But certainly the NEB has provided the government, whether in- intentionally or not, with cover. Yeah, I mean, there was some suspicion that there is some opposition 
some considerable opposition to the project here in BC. Majority support the project. British Columbia has become very important political ground for Justin Trudeau. They won a lot of seats here in the last election. They need to hang on to them in the next one. So there was some speculation, well, would they want to delay any further construction on this pipeline project to avoid uh, any arrests or civil disobedience and people lying down in front of bulldozers, or does he want to go forward with the construction this summer? I suspect they're probably leaning toward build, getting the project started building again as fast as possible this summer, even in, in advance of election, because he knows most people support the project. So, But you can bet British Columbia is ground zero for environmental civil disobedience there will be people who will be willing to lie down in front of bulldozers, whatever it takes to stop the project, and you can bet if when they start building it, you can count on the police having to arrest people as they block it. Yeah, not necessarily a good visual for someone running in an election campaign. Now, is there agreement, yeah. is there, Mike, is there agreement in British Columbia that Canada's economy is de- being damaged by regulatory crushing of Alberta's energy industry, which ultimately is Canada's energy industry? You know what? There's there's a surprising high level of support for this pipeline. I think in in British Columbia, a lot of certainly the the entrenched opposition to it. People will say, why should we be Alberta's doormat here? Why should we take all of the the very large percentage of the environmental risk for a very low percentage of the of the money and profits coming from a project like this? But there are agreements in in place to generate revenue for British Columbia, and most people support the project and a lot of people look at it as a job creator and by the way there's a lot of first nations support this pipeline too i mean certainly there is some fierce uh, first nations opposition to the project in some quarters but there's also a lot of first nations along that pipeline route that support it and they say look this is generating jobs for our people it gives us control over the environmental impact in our traditional territories it's generating money to send kids to school and take and take care of elders and all kinds of benefits so you know, anyone who tries to tell you that First Nations are, are 100% opposed to this pipeline are wrong because there's a, quite a, a lot of them that support it, too. Yeah. Mike, uh, they have 90 days to proceed. Yep. Well, that's what the federal government has, they have 90 days. And somewhere in this 90 days, the hypocrisy of the no complaining, about 800,000 barrels of foreign oil entering Canada, schlepped mm. in by tankers through environmentally sensitive areas in Quebec, that's staggering. That has to enter the equation somewhere. And it's not like there aren't already pipelines crisscrossing the nation, including British Columbia. Well, another factor that's been pointed out here in the last few days as well is that if this pipeline doesn't get built, uh, you, can, you will likely see increased use of rail cars to transport heavy oil through British Columbia. And that is much riskier than a pipeline. I mean, pipelines have been shown to be the safest way to transport this oil. If you're going to load uh, tanker cars full of oil and put them on rail and then run them along the Fraser River or a whole bunch of other rivers in British Columbia, if there's a derailment and a a spill into a river, you could have a catastrophic environmental disaster in that part of the river. So I think transporting this, this product by rail is a lot riskier than transporting it by pipeline. But now, then you get into the argument around the tankers, because then, of course, they got to load them into tankers and put them in the water. They have put so many safeguards into these, uh, into these ships. The ships have, are, are much safer than they used to be. They bring in professional pilots uh, to, to uh, pilot the ships through the coastal waters of B.C. They're tethered with tugboats just in case they lose power. 
certainly does not reduce, reduce the risk to zero. You can never get to zero, but they've taken a lot of precautions to make sure a spill doesn't happen. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, let's find out what's going on with the, the scandal, in the, the spending scandal in the, in the B.C. legislature. You've written a lot on that. Sure. You've done broadcasts on that. It's fascinating from the rest of the country. And as I said earlier, I wonder if people are pulling their cheeks together in other legislatures across Canada, just a little concerned <laughs> about what may be coming forward there. Well, I'll tell you what, we've never seen anything like this uh, spending scandal at the B.C. legislature. It all started back in November when the the two top uh, officials in the place, the clerk and the sergeant-at-arms, were marched out of the place under police escort. And the speaker of the legislature, Daryl Plekis, uh, revealed that they were under a police investigation with two special prosecutors in place. He then, the speaker then released a report in uh, January that detailed um, just uh, some unbelievable spending going on by by these two officials. I mean, spending the public's money on designer clothing and jewelry and watches and cameras, $600 suitcases, uh, globe-trotting travel, gourmet meals, uh, top-ups to their to their pensions, uh, vacation payouts, just unbelievable. The, the, the most famous one became kind of a symbolic of the whole thing, was a $13,000 wood wood splitter. It's one of these machines you use to split up chunks of wood. Yeah, I had one. I bought it for 200 bucks, and it leaked oil. <laughs> well, you, you know, listen, when you're, when you're spending other people's money, you only go with the best. Of course. So, I mean, this is one of the best wood splitters on the market and a beautiful trailer. And that had ended up, it, it turned out that it was parked at the home of the, the now suspended clerk of the house. And then uh, when the, the speaker blew the whistle on this thing, it was quickly returned to the legislature where it's sitting outside and just gathering rust right now. So, you know, this thing has just been a shock here. And the police investigation continues. Uh, the two officials are suspended with pay. Uh, they make a lot of money. The clerk of the house here makes $350,000 a year. Uh, this is the high. He's the highest-paid clerk in the country of any of any legislature, and he's at home uh, still collecting a salary while the police do their investigation. So this is a, a, a speaker here we have, and Daryl Plekis is just continuing to swing his wrecking ball here, and and he's he's told the public that you ain't seen nothing yet. He's just warming up. He's got more reports to come. So stay tuned. Well, I can't wait, and I would imagine yeah. that in some legislatures across the country there is some uh, shallow breathing going on. Now, well, now yeah, Mike, what about the sorry British the sorry uh, uh, by-election which take place on Monday one of three in the in the country? We'll be speaking with Maxime Bernier at the top of the next hour. This is uh, this is almost do or die politically for Jagmeet Singh. Yeah, Burnaby South. Um, this is an NDP. I said sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a uh, in suburb of Vancouver, and uh, it's an NDP seat. It was formerly held by Kennedy Stewart, who uh, who resigned to run successfully to become the mayor of Vancouver. So it was an NDP seat. However, he won it, the NDP candidate there won by a very narrow margin over the Liberals in the last election four years ago. So uh, this is no slam dunk. And for, for, Jagmeet, for uh, Jagmeet Singh, who, is, of course, is from Ontario, uh, he was viewed by a lot of people here as kind of a, a long-distance parachute candidate here, really had no connection to the riding. And so on paper, he should win. Uh, in reality... I'm not so sure. Uh, I think it could be close. And the by-elections on Monday, if he loses, it's obviously a disaster for him and I I think would trigger his resignation as the leader of the NDP. Now, 
very uh, ironically, I, I think that there are a lot of liberals who are silently kind of hoping that he does win because I think they'd want him to stick around. He, he has been a, a somewhat uninspiring leader of the NDP. They're trailing badly in the national polls. And I think Justin Trudeau and the Liberals would be a little bit more concerned if he actually lost and resigned and the NDP were able to put a new leader in there who might be able to be a fresh, have some fresh appeal to the public. So in a weird way, I think the Liberals might win this thing possibly on Monday, but, but maybe some of them are hoping that they actually lose so that they still have Jagmeet Singh to kick around here until the election in the fall. Ain't politics fun. Yeah. Speaking of, Ottawa. What do you make of it? Well, I think Trudeau's in a world of hurt on this thing, and I, I and it could get worse for him next week. And so Monday's going to be interesting. Not only do we got this uh, by-election, but we also have uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould, the, the former uh, attorney general of the country, who's a Vancouver MP, possibly set to testify in front of this federal justice committee. The last I heard, it could happen Monday or maybe Tuesday or perhaps next week, sometime this week. And... She hasn't said anything, of course, because she's uh, saying that she's under solicitor-client privilege and can't talk about it, but she's been taking some very high-profile legal advice, and you can just tell she wants to tell her side of the story. And if she does uh, appear in front of that committee and start telling some stories that, and, and saying that she was, felt that she was inappropriately pressured to make a decision on this uh, Quebec company, SNC-Lavalin, I think it uh, deepens the, the troubles for Trudeau, for sure. Trudeau, I think, has really bungled this. The, the communication and his handling on it has been really, really bad, in my opinion. Extremely inconsistent. Yeah, really bad. You know, in, in horse racing, they say that if a horse is a good at running on a muddy track, you call them a, a mutter. They, they, they can do well in uh, difficult conditions. Trudeau is no mutter. When the going gets tough here, he, he's proved to be uh, uh, not, not running very well on, an, on a sloppy track at all. No, don't put your money on him, not, a, not, no. not on that kind of track. Uh, let me ask you in about 20 seconds, where's the empathy in British Columbia? Is it with the former Attorney General? Oh, yeah. I think most people look at her and admire her, and her father has been very outspoken, who's a First Nations leader here as well, and a hereditary chief who's been standing up for his daughter, and he's gotten a lot of traction and a lot of attention in B.C., and I think most people in British Columbia admire her and want to hear her tell her story, and I hope she tells it next week. Mike, always great talking to you. Again, thank you so much for the time. My pleasure, Roy. Mike Smith from the Vancouver province and CKNW Radio on uh, goings-on in British Columbia, and there are many, and, uh, of course, also the Ottawa situation. I'm going to talk to two guests about the Jussie Smollett or Smollett story and uh, what their views are. He says that uh, that he was attacked, uh, and you, you heard the, uh, the voice here. That was from Good Morning America, and you know the story. Ron Miller is African-American. He's the author of Sellout. Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. He's the dean of the Helms School of Business at Liberty University. He's also a U.S. Air Force veteran. And Ron's been very kind to us with his time. Ron, thank you very much for the time. And can you, can you definitively tell me how to pronounce his last name? <laughs> no, actually, I would have said Smollett myself. Okay. Um, and but with respect to my colleague in the School of Business, I'm with the Helms School of Government. Oh, I'm sorry, School of Government. Uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll go with with Smollett then. I'll go back to my original pronunciation. Now, this uh, this particular case speaks to you of what? Well, there are a couple things I think about. First of all, um, it 
is if the charges appear to be true, if, if the process uh, works out and he is indeed guilty of what he's being accused of, then it's fairly callous of, if, of him to take some of the imagery that he used in his um, in his hoax, particularly the noose, because it just has such powerful connotations here in America because of the lynchings that took place after Reconstruction and all the way into the uh, pre-civil rights era. So um, it shows a real callous disregard for how serious and how emotionally powerful that symbology is. Um, and to use it in the services of oneself uh, really uh, means he either wasn't thinking or he has a, a thought process that is a little disordered. But all of that to say, um, clearly it lends, uh, it, it lends a problem to those who actually do encounter these kinds of things uh, in other places. Maybe they're not as famous, uh, or maybe it doesn't make the news, but uh, if these things do happen, uh, the skepticism that's a high-profile case like this casts on them will be to the detriment of people who really suffer uh, these kinds of attacks. Yeah, it would be difficult for for more for people to come forward, uh, more than likely, to explain or, or to share what may have happened to them because right away, as you said, they would feel like they were under some cloud of suspicion that they were either copycats or there was a hoax and that would be very difficult for somebody to uh, to to endure if they had in fact been victims of a race crime absolutely what are your uh, what are your students saying about this what are the the younger people saying about this situation about this case well those who i've heard talking about it um they're they're shaking their heads in many respects because uh it is such a almost a, a trivial reason for a, for a heinous crime does that make sense that uh, when you think of his motivations, it just seemed that they were so small compared to the nature of the crime itself and the way it was portrayed. Um, and they also are talking about the rush to judgment on not just the, the media, uh, but also by society in general. I think we have become so attuned as a society to wanting to find the worst possible um, behaviors we can and, and ascribe them to our opponents that the minute we have something uh, we're, we're going to put it out there we're going to splash it out there um, we've seen we've seen that happen a couple times in a couple of high profile instances uh, the instance in Washington with the Covington High School uh, um, incident and mm -hmm. then now this the minute there was anything out there that looked like it could be used to taint a particular identity group all of a sudden, it's taking off. There's a famous saying that was, was once attributed to Mark Twain. I've learned since then, being an investigator, that he didn't actually say it, but it's a great saying nonetheless, and that is that a, a lie can be halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on. I've heard that, yeah. And uh, I really think that's what's happening yeah. in today's society. We're so quick to uh, want to paint our opponents with a, uh, a broad brush of, 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 of wrong that uh, we don't allow the truth, the opportunity to, uh, to breathe and to, and to come to light. And nobody wants to be second with an opinion. And I, I, I thought that was the case with some of the Democrat uh, presidential candidates like uh, Senator Cam Kamala, or Kamala Harris, uh, Kamala mm -hmm. Harris and, uh, and Cory Brooker, the, uh, Booker, the uh, former 
the mayor of uh, Newark, New Jersey, and they both uh, called it uh, a race crime and uh, a heinous attack. And and then they then you find yourself with well, what do I do with it now? Because now charges have been laid, and and they it looks like they're caught, and they don't know quite what to say. And when you consider um, Iran, that uh, there's another argument that if Smollett, uh, even if he's lying, is putting a face to daily hate toward LGBTQ community members, uh, this all starts to become difficult to absorb and, 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 and work forward from. So there has to be a resolution of this, and, and quickly. Well, there has to be a resolution. I don't know if it will be a quick resolution. Uh, I have to say I'm surprised, given the uh, evidence that has been presented to this point, that uh, he's still declaring that he is innocent. Um, uh, I have a feeling that at some point... Uh, to the public and the public through the uh, trial at some point just admit to what what he did uh, and again i know there's the presumption of innocence in the court system but in public opinion i have a hard time imagining that uh, he can keep this going for very much longer well that well, i said quickly because i think my guess would be that his lawyers are probably trying to come up with some sort of plea bargain deal that uh that uh, their client would find acceptable. I'm just, I, we're all guessing at this point, but I also remember reading about uh, uh, Chicago parents, I was reading about that this morning, who lost their children to gun violence and who argue there's no money and not enough resources to properly investigate their children's death, but that much money is going to be spent on this, uh, on this uh, not guilty plea. So there's so many, so many factors at play. Absolutely. That's absolutely the case. Ron, always good speaking with you. Thank you so much for the time. Oh, my pleasure, always. Ron Miller is uh, the dean of the School of Government at Liberty University, and uh, his book is Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch, and you can find his work at ronsreflections.com. Yeah, so Jesse Smollett, thinking about this man, and and what he just what you just heard him say that was in an interview with Good Morning America's Robin Roberts, and he insists he's telling the truth. He insists it all happened as he says it happened. His lawyers insist on his behalf, of course, and yet he's facing charges. They're not going to include him in the last two segments of Empire, and public opinion is just absolutely running rampant. There are presidential candidates, declared presidential candidates, Democrats, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, who both uh, endorsed his, 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 his case at the very beginning, and now they're trying to work their way out of it. And I don't think they're doing particularly well. Um, with us on the program to speak about this is Dr. Lauren A. Wright. She's a lecturer in politics and public affairs at Princeton University. She also teaches courses there on the American Presidency and Executive Power, Women in Politics, and Political Communication. She's a frequent media guest, and uh, her new book is Star Power, American Democracy in the Age of the Celebrity Candidate. Dr. Wright, thank you very much uh, for the time. This is, is, this, is this case really all about celebrity? Thanks, Roy. Yes, celebrity is a key part of this case. I'm so glad you mentioned it. That actually hasn't been talked about all that much. And really what's so important to realize is that Jesse Smollett's not a normal person. He is 
very famous. And what we really have here with the American media environment is reporters that don't have time to look into the facts because there's so many stories that they're constantly having to recycle and do these sort of short investigations. That clearly happened. We have an inattentive public. We have social media. And we have an obsession with celebrities. So combine all of those and you have a fake at least really what it looks like, a fake hate crime that is getting so much more attention than the thousands of real hate crimes that we have in the U.S. every single year. Well, that's a sad side of it, isn't it? I mentioned that to a previous guest. We were just talking uh, with Ron Miller from Liberty University. He's the dean of government uh, there, and he's, he's African-American. There are, there's got to be cases now where because of the whether Smollett is, is lying or not, and you know, I'm, I'm looking at it the same way you are, but it, it is going to uh, it's going to make it difficult for people who are in fact victims of a hate crime to step forward because they will consider that they will be viewed through the same prism as he is. Yes, absolutely, and we know the number one reason that these statistics are severely underreported, they're underestimates of the real numbers of hate crimes, is because people are afraid that the public won't believe them. They think it's not worth it to come out and take a risk. It's the same thing with rape and sexual assault victims. It's the same thing with uh, marginalized groups who figure, why take the risk? No one's going to believe me anyway. And this just made it so much harder for those people. I don't know if this is a fair question or not, but you you deal with public opinion and you deal with celebrity, and your book is Star Power, American Democracy in the Age of the Celebrity Candidate. Clearly, we were, we're familiar with that. Uh, why, would, yeah. why, why, would the, why would somebody do this? It's actually a really valid question. So I'm not a psychologist, and I'll tell you that right up front, but there are psychologists who have done a lot of research on celebrities. And what the research really shows is that on average, this class of people, while they're very privileged, uh, have serious pressure on them to constantly be relevant, to constantly um, increase their fame, increase their following, to be involved in the debates of the day. Um, those pressures are real, and it's not a surprise that a lot of them have serious personality anomalies that, you know, they don't, they're not in touch with the real world and the real problems that people face. And so I think this combination of things, well, what I argue in the book is that it's one reason they make very poor government representatives, but it also explains why this happened with Jesse Smollett and what possibly could have motivated it. And it is those pressures that are placed on celebrities and it, you know, it can, it can end up in disaster. So you're, you're, uh, one of your areas of expertise is public opinion. Now, the public has been exposed to different angles, different perspectives. They've heard one, they've heard another, they've heard the charges, they've heard him say, I'm innocent. Where is public opinion ultimately going to go? Where do you think public opinion is now? Well, what we normally see with public opinion is that it takes a long time to change. But with this, it is not taking a long time to change. The winds are really, really 
um, shifting toward people not believing Jesse Smollett. And that is really important in, in the court of public opinion, in the, in the legal courts, too. And really what happened to him is, you know, he, yes, he received an outsized amount of media attention at first, um, and public attention at first. And so if people had believed him, that would have been a good thing for his case. But then he also received an outsized amount of legal scrutiny, and that is why he's been found out. I don't think he's going to be able to return to his career. I think he's going to eventually have to come clean and apologize. I would be very, very surprised if he doesn't really change the strategy that he's taking right now with regard to the public turning against him. Yeah. Dr. Wright, I thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 